0: Welcome to Unpacking Ideas, a podcast where each episode I invite on a new guest to help me unpack the ideas in an influential piece of writing. Today we are looking at Obedience to Authority by Stanley Milgram. Milgram was a researcher, social psychologist, and writer who lived in the mid-20th century— This book was published in 1974 and details his famous obedience experiments that he conducted a decade earlier at Yale University. Today, helping me unpack this book was Claire Bevan. Milgram gave us more than enough to talk about. Uh, Aside from unpacking his experiments, we looked at his ideas on shame, guilt, rationalization, disassociation, dehumanization, compliance, awkwardness, politeness, the agentic state, the division of labor and society, shirking moral responsibility, Nazi Germany, the banality of evil, obedience to God, and the ethics of psychological research. So we had a lot to talk about, and some of these ideas just really, just really knocked me off my feet. Um, I hope that has the same effect of you. Uh, I hope that our conversation helps you digest some of this content. Uh, so without any further ado, I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Claire on Obedience to Authority.
1: All right, Woo-hoo! we're doing it.
0: Sweet. We had some delicious Thai food.
1: We're very full.
0: Very full. Had some giant uh, Thai tea.
1: Yes, very spracked. Some
0: boba tea. I still have well over half left so big gulp big gulps uh hopefully i'm not gonna be like super caffeinated to the point that i'm annoying but um we've definitely got energy
1: or chewing on bobas
0: was that it is kind of like a combination of a it just hits the back of food. your throat yeah oh, well so we'll see if i'm chewing on some gelatinous substances throughout <laughs> But all right, so we just had dinner, and we were we kept having to like stop ourselves from talking about this because we didn't wanna we didn't wanna get too deep into it. There's we wanted a lot to save there it for the podcast, yeah. Um, and I'm super excited. I read this book maybe three years ago, and it blew my mind then, and I think it blew my mind even more this time.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah,
0: super excited to get into it.
1: Me too.
0: All right. Well. I was thinking we could start by just um, just talking a little bit about the history of the experiments and also just laying out what exactly happened to the experiments. I mean, the, I think the interesting things are going to be when we talk about the, the implications of the experiments and why Milgram thinks people acted the way they do, but maybe we can at least try to be scientific and just talk about what happened, and then we can look at the, the why.
1: Yeah, and I think he, an interesting thing about this book, you know, I, I think this is one of the more famous psychological experiments that people sort of mention in passing, the the mushroom or the the uh, marshmallow test, another mm. one, the Stanford yeah. experiment. So we all kind of generally know, but the way he lays it out, much like you know a scientific paper, was was really helpful.
0: Totally so,
1: tell the listeners.
0: Well, so the experiments, uh, the famous. Milgram shock experiments or obedience experiments uh, took place in 1961 and 62. And uh, this book that we read uh, was written like over 10 years later. In, yeah, in uh, 1974. So, And a lot of people I was telling about this podcast were like, oh, I didn't know it was a book. Hmm. Um, so he details the experiments, exactly what happened, as well as giving some of his own thoughts and insights um into yeah kind of the his motivations for the experiments what this can tell us about human nature what implications it might have and so forth
1: yeah it's really brilliant the way he does it and i was tech when i was texting you when we read this you read the experiments and you kind of think that's what it's going to be and then mm-hmm. there's this whole other aspect of the book of him sort of answering all the questions you have when you think about this thing yeah. um that's a whole different sort of second part of the book so it's a it's a quick read um and it's fun to bounce between more narrative form and then kind of the data piece of it
0: totally well and i also found it interesting kind of like his motivation for the experiments Mm. um i was learning a little bit about his life and he he was i believe a graduate student at harvard under solomon ash who did the famous ash conformity experiments Mm. which were basically um just real quickly they're basically an experiment to see how much people would conform to what the group did so in that experiment uh they would have one subject come in and everybody else in the room would be like a paid actor. So you'd have like mm. five um, actors and then one subject who they were actually doing the experiment on. And then all of them would be asked a simple question like, which one of these lines is longer?
1: Mm-mm, and right.
0: the the subject, the one they were studying, would answer last after everybody else in the room gave the wrong answer. And, you know, it's a very basic question. You, like, see these lines, and one of them is clearly longer than the other. But after having everybody else say, oh, yeah, A, 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 it gets to that person. And, you know, what Ash found was, more often than not, people would comply or conform to the group.
1: Totally. Um, And that's an example of how this... You know, the theories here are true, even when morality and pain isn't even a part of it, Mm. Um, but just when a a group or an authority goes a certain way. Yeah, that that one is nuts.
0: Yeah, it's really crazy. And I think you, I'm not sure if you can watch those online. You can definitely watch the ones that that we, uh, Mm -hmm. this experiment online, which was was really fascinating too. But so, uh, so Milgram kind of already had some of these ideas rocking around in his head, so that's one of the things motivating him to do the, the shock experiments. And then the other thing he says at this, in this book, kind of his existential questions for the experiment, um, these were kind of some of the things that he was trying to answer with these. Uh, he says, quote, how do civilized human beings participate in collective inhumane acts? How is genocide enacted so systematically and efficiently and how do the perpetrators of genocide live with themselves and so this was happening in the sixties uh around the time some of the uh, some of the Nazis involved in the Holocaust were going to trial mm-hmm. and so this was like a very pertinent question then he was kind of not only saying like okay how is how is genocide being able to be carried out but like how is it?" Being carried out that like efficiently hmm. and like at such a, such a scale
1: totally it, yeah. it's a very interesting time in history because it was you know kind of thirty ish years after hmm. and y- you do have you know the sciences and psychology is much more evolved and then they're sort of recovering from this world shattering event. What an interesting time to be studying that. And then also in the context of looking forward to the Vietnam war, which he talks about a little bit at the end and napalm. And so these new technologies of killing people at mass scale, um, you know, what better question to be asking at that time?
0: Totally. Well, yeah. And I think it helps kind of take it out of like, okay, this isn't just somebody in their ivory tower you know, trying to see what happens in this experiments. Like, I I think all this stuff obviously has real-world implications. Mm. And throughout this book, he kind of will tie the experiments and the findings of the experiments to, you know, what is happening politically or what is happening at the societal level. Yep. Um,
1: and this the book has to get tied to the Nazi issue. Like, it's so mm. commonly compared, and it comes up throughout the book. But I think it's also important, he says at the end, and we can get into it, it's not about that. It's about humans' proclivity to follow authority, no matter how small. right? Um, And, you know, sure, we all have the capacity for potentially egregious acts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess just one more small part of that, since we're kind of talking about him, I guess uh, Milgram's mother and father were from Eastern Europe, and... Uh, Mm. were jewish so i think kind of in the background of his mind too was like hey if if they hadn't uh immigrated to america like it's very likely that they would have you know died in the holocaust as well so he had kind of maybe a a personal relationship to that question as well huge um so maybe we could talk about the experiment and he actually uh lays out the experiment uh on page three of this book so i'm just going to read exactly what he wrote Like you said, I think this experiment has kind of trickled into popular culture. A lot of people are going to be familiar, but just to get everybody up to speed, I'm just going to read, uh, exactly what Milgram wrote happened in these experiments. All right. So quote, two people come to a psychology laboratory to take part in a study of memory and learning. One of them is designated as a teacher and the other a learner. The experimenter explains that the study is concerned with the effects of punishment on learning. The learning is conducted into a room excuse me, the learner is conducted into a room seated in a chair, his arms strapped to f- prevent excessive movement and an electrode attached to his wrist. He is told that he is to learn lists of word pairs. Whenever he makes an error, he will receive an electric shock of increasing intensity. The real focus of the experiment is the teacher. After watching the learner being strapped into place, he is taken into the main experimental room and seated before an impressive shock generator. Its main feature is a horizontal line of 30 switches ranging from 15 volts to 450 volts in 15-volt increments. There are also verbal designations which range from slight shock to danger severe shock. The teacher is told that he is administering the learning test to the man in the other room. When the learner responds correctly, the teacher moves on to the next item. When the other man gives an incorrect answer, the teacher is to give him an electric shock. He is to start at the lowest shock level, 15 volts, and to increase the level each time the man makes an error, going through 30 volts, 45 volts, and so on. The teacher is a genuine naive subject who has come to the laboratory to participate in the experiment. The learner or victim is an actor who actually receives no shock at all. The point of the exp- of exp- the experiment is to see how far a person will proceed in a concrete and measure- measurable situation in which he is ordered to inflict increasing pain on a protesting victim. At which point will the subject refuse to obey the experiment? Conflict of arise- arises when the man receiving the shock begins to indicate that he is experiencing discomfort. At seventy-five volts, the learner grunts. At one hundred and twenty volts, he complains verbally. At 150, he demands to be released from the experiment. His protests continue as the shocks escalate, growing increasingly vehement and emotional. At 285 volts, his response can only be described as an agonized scream. Observers of the experiment agree that its gripping quality is somewhat obscured in print. For this subject, the situation is not a game. Conflict is intense and obvious. On one hand... The manifest suffering of the learner presses him to quit. On the other, the experimenter, a legitimate authority to whom the subject feels some commitment, enjoins him to continue. Each time the subject hesitates to administer shock, the experimenter orders him to continue. To extricate himself from the situation, the subject must make a clear break with authority the aim of the investigation was to find when and how people would defy authority in the face of clear of a clear moral imperative. Beautifully read. Yeah. Also, I like how there was some like background thunder during that. It definitely added to the ambiance. It
1: shows. (laughs) This isn't just light stuff like it and it says observers of the experiment agree that it's gripping quality is somewhat obscured in print. Like when you go through it and particularly seeing the videos. Mm. Oh, it's awful these people are screaming and yeah. then just stop responding yeah insane
0: it's, You you can watch on youtube i think it's just called milgram documentary it's like 40, 45 minutes where they have actual footage of the people partaking in the experiment and and yeah like i i totally agree i mean the you're hearing like this this you know it's an actor so the the voices are, the screams aren't real but um you know, to the subject they're they're real. And you can see also how kind of conflicted a lot of these people mm. are. You know, like the sweating, they're like putting their fingers between their hair and just like biting their lip. Mm-hmm. Like you can you can see that agitation on their and faces.
1: constantly looking at the experimenter mm. every time and every time yeah. one of those grunts or screams would come looking over there for validation. Um, totally just really really awful and the voltage like there's something so inhumane about this switchboard with Mm vaults the worst of which say xxx and just something about a shock it's really sort of guttural
0: totally well and we should talk also about kind of Milgram's hypothesis and like what he thought was going to happen um yeah maybe we can get into that that now because that's really fascinating
1: yeah everyone was surprised that it went the way it did mm. and yeah, i don't have it in front of me but they did research they interviewed a bunch of people yeah. and asked how everyone and everyone pretty much said they wouldn't go along with it
0: yeah the, yeah they pulled people um they had people come in and they pulled them on basically like hey if you were going to partake in this experiment mm-hmm. like how do you think what do you think would happen for you and uh So when they did this, not a single person said that they would go above 300 volts and the average was like the mean was, uh, 130 volts. So people thought on average when, you know, if this were me, this is what I would do. Um, and then this, is what I thought was fascinating, then they asked, they they were trying to kind of control for like, okay, well, of course, of course people are going to have this bias to think favorably of themselves. So then they asked the question, what do you think other people would do? Like, what do you think the average other person would do? And um, when they pulled that, most people thought that other people would not go above 150. And they, other people thought that maybe 4% of the population would reach 300 volts. And one out of 1,000 would go all the way. And also, we should say Milgram was typical of these other people too. He he thought uh, it very unlikely that anybody would go up to like 450 volts.
1: Yep, and it's you know this goes back to we all think we're not capable of evil things. And he says, sitting back in one's armchair, it's easy to condemn the actions of the obedient subjects. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's just so easy to say. On paper, this thing looks so bad, but it's not the the values, it's not the morals, it's that action of disobedience yeah. that people really underestimated as being so hard.
0: So we've built it. up. We should should mention uh, the happened? compliance, <laughs> yeah, the, the obedience rate was uh, 65%. So 65% of test subjects went all the way to 450 volts and I think gave three shocks shocks at 450 volts before the experimenter asked them to stop. So in other words, 65% of the people just kept going, kept going until finally the experimenter said, all right, we're done.
1: Yep. And then an additional 12% went to the 300 volt intense shock. So mm. most people so, got yeah. really far. And that 65%, we'll talk about the variations of the experiment, was pretty consistent. You saw that number mm. a lot yeah. in a lot of the variations.
0: And one other number that's interesting to throw out is not one person didn't do anything. Any shocks. Which, yeah, that's really fascinating. So there wasn't one person that, you know, once they got into the experiment, once they got in the lab, they said, here's what you're going to be doing. Not one person was just like, no, nah, I'm, I'm out, even before starting. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, I mean, going back onto the hypothesis of like how, how just wrong the average person is when thinking about whether or not they would do this. I mean, I guess this is the, you know, we we're talking earlier about the Holocaust and whatever. I mean, it's the same kind of thing of, I, you know, I could never have done that if I was the average German citizen, like I could have never been a Nazi and it's like, well, statistically you would have and you know if if we're using milgram's metrics like there's a two third you know the 66 percent chance that you would have been that person but it's also very apparent that you would never think that you would be that person Mm -hmm. um so there's a pretty big disconnect
1: huge disconnect and a lack of sort of self-understanding and we'll talk about why that disconnect happens, but really interesting that a characteristic of that state altered state that you're in is that you don't really see that you're in it and you don't believe that you could be mm. in it. Because right. It really doesn't line up with self-awareness at all. Right.
0: And there's something called, uh, I think it's called the attribution error, which mm. is like our tendency to uh, attribute what people do to their like moral character rather than attribute it to their surroundings so you know like we see somebody being really rude to like a waiter at a restaurant and we're like oh that person's a rude asshole as opposed to like oh bet they're having a bad day Mm -hmm. um and i think this is kind of similar to the attribution error in that like we think that whether or not we comply or excuse me whether or not we obey the experimenter has more to do with what kind of a person we are Mm -hmm. rather than what kind of situation it is and i think the one of the themes that runs through this whole book is that we are a lot more malleable based on our the situation we find ourselves in
1: yeah and Um, our relationship to that situation to the context mm -hmm. and to those other you know the authority those other people in the room and we and that yeah, you're right, that sense of self worth is just way more inflated um when put in in more challenging contexts, totally, and sort of self image
0: a, a big thing Milgram gets into um what he calls like the agentic state, yep. which is like there's there's this shift that happens a lot of times when uh somebody is receiving orders from an authority is that they stop like they they're no longer in this autonomous state where they're thinking is this good or is this bad their new morality becomes am i doing a good job or a bad job in the eyes of this you know person or you know government i guess that is asking me to do this thing so it stops becoming become like their their self-evaluation isn't like oh i did this good thing or i did this bad thing it's like oh i made you know the boss happy, or I made the experimenter happy, or I didn't
1: and he and Milgram really stresses that you're it's a different state. You're literally becoming a different person. Mm. Um, he says the person becomes something different from his former self, um, and that self-image turns to the authority to kind of be the confirmation of your self-image and who you think you are.
0: And I think this also explains one of the things that was really common in the experiment was people almost inevitably would, even after the experiment, you know, when the experiment would come in, kind of, surprise, you're on candid camera, or you know, yeah. <laughs> that, like, hey, this is actually an experiment about you to see how much you would obey. They would, a lot of people, hold to the story of, like, yeah, but I was just doing what they said. Mm-hmm. Like, even the idea that, like, hey, you had some choice whether or not to obey. Like, there was one guy, um, just to use an anecdote, and and I, he's actually one of the people in the documentary, and you see the you know the people trying to explain to him, like, you know, why didn't you stop? Why didn't? Mm-hmm. And he just doesn't get it he Mm -hmm. was just like well no i did what they said i just because he told me i just did what he said Mm -hmm. so there's this kind of removal of even seeing no as an option Mm -hmm. i think a lot of it a lot of times these people like it just didn't even occur to them that like disobeying was Mm -hmm. on the table Mm -hmm.
1: um they become an agent an arm like a literal limb of that experimenter or the 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 authority and it it was interesting in a lot of the the anecdotes of people that they just didn't get it. You mm-hmm. know, a few people were moved yeah. and even wrote later and said, "Hey, this really affected me," but a lot of people like even kind of still even thought they were talking about memory test because it was it was yeah. posed as a memory <laughs> test. Right. Um and that, you know, they just got so into and that's the sort of more um the greater good that they were trying to pursue, they still have that front in their mind and they can't switch yeah. to think that this might've been about something else.
0: Right. And, uh, one of these quotes that kind of brings it home, uh, quote, a typical reply was, I wouldn't have done it by myself. I was just doing what I was told. Unable to defy the authority of the exper- experimenter, they attribute it, attribute all responsibility to him. Is the old story of just doing one's duty that was heard time and time again in the defense of statements of those accused in Nuremberg, uh, meaning the Holocaust. But it would be wrong to think of it as a thin alibi concocted for the occasion. Rather, it is a fundamental mode of thinking for a great many of people once they are locked into a subordinate position in a structure of authority the disappearance of a sense of responsibility is the most far reaching consequence Mm -hmm. of submission to authority. So I thought that was noteworthy is, you know, it's not, it's not as if these people are disingenuous when they're saying like, I didn't do anything wrong. Like they they actually, it's, it's actually a pretty strong belief of like, Hey, I was just following orders. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's that, that, that duty piece was used a lot in, in the Nuremberg trials. Um, And it's, you know, you're not, it's not their experiment. They didn't set this thing up. They're just, you know, pulling the lever.
0: Yeah. Which ties into another piece uh, that Milgram talks a little about, a little bit about is this aspect of, he calls it like the division of labor so in this particular experiment there's a division of labor in that like the experimenter is just giving orders they're not actually giving the shocks and the subject is just giving shocks they're not giving the order so what tends to happen is in this division of labor not just the subject but both parties kind of shun the responsibility or shove the responsibility onto the other and you know the experimenter i mean obviously in this this case it was it was uh you know an actor so he didn't say this but um you know uh milgram uses the the case of eichmann in this and the nazi trials and he's saying like okay well the the guards in the concentration camps are saying like hey i'm just following orders it's not like i'm the one you know giving orders to to kill these jews and the the officers are just saying hey i'm just giving orders it's not like i'm the one killing these jews and he's saying it's kind of a consequence that happens in the division of labor that happens in society
1: which was sort of an inevitable evolution of humankind but you can see how when suddenly people have specialized jobs um you, you start to lose what you're really doing or the impacts of it. And you just get farther away from um, the actual act. I, mm. I mean, I think of like, you know, people who don't want to kill their cow right in front of them, but they're happy to go buy a burger. Like it, the, the farther away yeah. you get, um, the easier it is to give yourself an excuse.
0: Right. And, you know, use like the burger mm-hmm. example. Yeah, it is. It is kind of that in that, like, oh well, I'm just eating the burger. It's not like I'm killing the animal, and the you know the the butcher could say, well, you know, I'm just killing the animals. I'm not the one eating it. Like, yep. you know, it's uh,
1: you pass yeah. pass the responsibility along, and like many things around authority, it serves as a evolutionary purpose. You know, and mm. we need div- division of labor to have you know the world that we've created yeah um but there's you know huge implications for it
0: totally super fascinating the other kind of point that i was thinking about the agenic state and maybe why we enter into it he doesn't say this but it got me thinking of um like in a sense when an individual enters this agenic state where they're kind of like checking out and you know, just becoming a part of whatever this authority wants them to do. It's a way it's kind of like a mental shortcut. Like they're they're not kind of having to do their own thinking for themselves and they're kind of like giving that to the authority in a kind of like um law of least effort kind of way. Like Mm -hmm. we're always looking for ways to do less work and think less because energy is expensive. So one thing I was thinking about, I was recently, uh, I recently went to Italy with my parents and we did a bike tour and the, this tour was like 10 of us on these bikes and we're, th- there's one tour guide who was like at the front of the pack on his bike and we we're riding all around Rome and if anybody's ever been to Rome, like it's a very Shit. dangerous place to be cross the street just in general. You got all these like mopeds, people, no offense to Romans, but people drive like crazy over there. Um, so it's very dangerous. And there was one point where the tour guide like went ahead under the impression that, you know, he was just going ahead and all of us were kind of looking out for ourselves. And my mom just followed him without even looking both Mm -hmm. ways because in her mind she assumed that he was in charge and leading and would only cross the street if everybody could follow him right so it was a kind of way of her to do some like you know okay well i'm just following him i'm not actually i don't actually have to look both ways and she almost got hit by a car (laughs) and i like screamed i was like mom what like jesus yeah and she was just like oh my god like sorry i just assumed that like because he crossed that I could cross. Right. So it seems to me that's part of, part of what that is. It's like, okay, well, we just kind of blindly follow or blindly obey. In a sense, we are like offloading some of that cognitive hmm. load onto others.
1: And in that example, she had a job to do, which is to ride her bike and not fall off her bike. Yeah. And that was enough. <laughs> like that yeah, was all she was right. willing to muster. Yeah. And it, it is. It's it's calming. Mm. Um. And I think it's easier to almost get into a flow state in that way of like this is my task,
0: mm-hmm. and I
1: will do it, and I'll be this part of the conveyor belt. Um. Yeah. Versus and and it's not help productive to second guess every decision that you're making. Sure. Um. You you know you, it's comforting to give that up to someone else. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I thought, and I noticed it too. I mean, there was times where I was walking around Italy with my parents where maybe one of them knew where we were going and was leading. And I would find myself like kind of checked out and not in that same headspace that I would be in if I'm just walking around a busy city by myself where I am looking out for cars. You just kind of get into that like, oh, well, I'm under this person's, you know, leadership or authority right now. I can kind of just mentally check out. And they will accept responsibility for whatever happens
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and they also they're from here they know the city they're Mm. the authority they're wearing the like roman lab coat that gives you them gives them that trust and yeah it's you know it's there as if i fall um but yeah those are all in a sense not going to keep you from getting hit, hit by a car
0: totally well and i think that kind of similar thing is happening in this experiment when you see The, um, you know, almost like the subject hiding behind the experimenter. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's just, you know, it's just them. I'm, I'm just following orders.
1: Absolutely.
0: So there was that tendency to, uh, you know, shove the responsibility onto the experimenter. But there's also a tendency to shove the responsibility onto the victim which is another uh, super tragic super tragic but um nonetheless fascinating aspect of this in that you know after a lot of people complied they would blame the victim of oh he was so stubborn or he was so stupid to get all of those words wrong
1: um and there's a huge depersonalization element there right and how yeah. it's really easy then to vilify that person in some way see them as stupid um and see in group out group you and the experimenter or the head honchos this person is somehow less than and i think that that less than component that's when you start getting into genocide territory right like when you can think of someone as less Mm. than human um you know all bets are off
0: Totally. And he uh, Milgram talks about that a little bit. And, you know, when we're looking at, OK, well, what was different than from this experiment to the Holocaust? I mean, one of the big ones is Milgram says, OK, well, in the Holocaust, there was like a 10 year propaganda campaign to yep. de- to demonize and dehumanize the Jewish people. Um So that made it a lot easier for the average German citizen to to, um you know to inflict uh, harm onto the Jewish people. Um, But one really interesting aspect that he gets into here is it was as if after after these subjects had already inflicted harm onto this innocent guy that they felt a need to blame him in order to kind of relieve themselves of some of this guilt. Hmm. So it's kind of one of the things I was thinking It's kind of a chicken and egg situation in that like, you know, we could, we could say, all right, well, the, the reason that we're able to, you know, harm people is because we have dehumanized them. But you can also mm-hmm. flip it and say, we dehumanize people because we already have harmed them. Um, to make
1: ourselves feel better. To make
0: ourselves feel better, exactly. So... On this point, he says, of considerable interest, however, is the fact that many subjects harshly devalue the victim as a consequence of acting against him. Such comments as, he was so stupid and stubborn, he deserved to get shocked, were Mm -hmm. common. Once having acted against the victim, these subjects found it necessary to view him as an unworthy individual whose punishment was made inevitable by his own deficiencies of intellect and character.
1: And the you know the 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 uncomfortable laughter comes to mind too. Mm. That this becomes kind of a it, yeah. You're looking when faced with something painful, you're you're grasping at anything to make yourself feel better, um, and it these sort of more sadistic elements become apparent.
0: Right. Yeah, and it seems like a yeah a response to relieving oneself of the guilt and i can kind of think of it on like a personal level and then maybe on like a more societal level so like on a personal level i can relate to maybe treating somebody poorly in a relationship who wasn't deserving of it and then finding myself kind of looking for reasons to victimize them to kind of oh well they deserved it because of this this and this um
1: totally
0: so i can relate to it there but also i was reading uh actually read recently this book on critical race theory and there was an idea in this book that kind of maps onto that um they say quote materialists point out that conquering nations universally demonize their subjects to feel better about exploiting them so that for example planners and ranchers in Texas and the Southwest circulated notions of Mexican inferiority at roughly the same period that they found it necessary to take over Mexican lands or later to import Mexican people for back- backbreaking labor. And that idea kind of blew my mind. I mean they're cuz in that way they're kind of saying okay well dehumanization doesn't exist naturally. It's mm-hmm. it's like like they exploit somebody and then for their own like selfish motive and then find a way of justifying it by then kind of creating like a negative stereotype
1: and i i think it sort of has to happen that way you, mm. i i i find it hard to believe People are really thinking, okay, I'm going to get this benefit. I'm going to explode down the road. What can I do now to set myself up for that? Sure. You can see how so naturally you, you need the benefit. You want the positive outcome. And then your mind needs to tell you a story about it afterwards.
0: I just find it so interesting, like kind of that chicken and egg situation. because exactly. It's like, do we harm people because we have dehumanized them? Or do we hu- dehumanize people because we have harmed them?
1: Right. And it's a feedback loop. Once you've done that, it becomes right. so much easier to continue doing it. Totally. Should we talk about some of the variations?
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They nice. were they were wild. And I think I was excited as we headed into, So, the, so they really just set up, all right, let's look at this experiment a bunch of different ways. Hmm. What if it's only women participants? What if we do it in different locations? And yeah. you really see overall that there's not much change. Um, Mm. there's a few to call out. I think the ones that popped out at me are, you know, those that were really lower were, um, when the experimenter was absent. So that person the experimenter wasn't in the room anymore. And then when the subject chose the shock level themselves, they got to pick how much they administered. You saw that really go down. Mm. Um, but he probably did what, 20 different variations. Yeah.
0: There were a lot of different variations. Um, yeah, like you said, that when the experimenter, so they did one where basically the experiment, like, experimenter, like, made up some excuse, so oh, I've got to leave to go check on this thing, but continue doing this experiment in my absence. And uh, so the experimenter was giving the orders on a phone mm-hmm. rather than in person. And that was one where it actually dropped pretty significantly. It went from 65%... total obedience to 20 Mm percent
1: and i mean just that made me think about a lot of things i mean how often when the teacher isn't looking at you when your boss isn't breathing Mm. down your neck is it easier to not do your job um and i mean sort of sadistically it makes me also realize hey if you if you want someone to do something you better stick around yeah um Cause it, yeah, out of sight, out of mind, and it, it's easier. And maybe that's the authority agentic state too. Is the agentic state was severed when that person isn't right there, being a part of your body?
0: Yeah, I think that's. I think that's definitely it. And there's there's less chance of kind of getting caught. So one of the other interesting things happened when they did this variation is a lot of the subjects gave. A less intense shock than they were mm-hmm. supposed to. Mm-hmm. So, like, you're supposed to go up by what, like 15 volts every time they get the answer wrong? A lot of them would just keep administering like the lower level shocks. Yep. Which is also interesting uh, because one thing Milgram says over and over throughout this book is it isn't sadism that is motivating these uh, subjects to obey it's not like as if we have this you know unconscious need or desire to see others suffer and that like if given the chance we'll just kind of gleefully do yep. it it's like you know when people got to decide for their own like you mentioned like what level of shock they would always do the lowest one mm-hmm. or like even this they would even uh kind of tamper with the experiment in order to give them a lower shock right
1: and in that way this experiment isn't about our capacity to be evil—it's yeah. our capacity to do what we're told and throw everything out out the window. It really always comes back to that authority. And interesting because you get start to get into a cycle there because now they're they're lying mm. to follow the rules of the experiment or that are actually immoral. Like there's just immorality, like cycles <laughs> yeah. around this. Or the folks that sort of gave a hint, like they would either you know give this give the victim a hint or you know say words louder to really give them a leg up like there's this just sort of circular nature of them trying to help um
0: yeah totally and and that also kind of uh discredits anybody because one of the kind of justifications some of the subjects gave after they had administered the the shocks was oh well i was just trying to like better science and like i you know i just want to wanted to kind of increase humanity's understanding and in being part of this experiment i was going to help with that um but that kind of falls apart when you find that okay well subjects were willing to kind of cheat in the experiment in order to not as not cause as much suffering but they you know at, at least at that point weren't um stopping the experiment they were just tampering with it
1: yep and the only thing that is more painful than hearing that subject's cries is disobeying the authority and (laughs) when that authority and that just i mean he goes into that at the end it's wild when that authority is removed a little like in the other room Mm. that pain becomes less um and the victim's pain becomes stronger
0: totally yeah, so that, that was an interesting component. There's also one that stuck out to me was uh, the variation with the proximity of the subject to the victim. Yep. So like we said in the classic experiment, the victim being shocked is in the other room um, and not visible to the subject who is shocking them. But they did this a few different ways. So one of them was uh, they put the victim in the same room a few feet away and it went down to 40% obedience, which is a pretty significant jump. And then the lowest was when the subject actually had to touch the victim to shock the victim themselves. Uh, Obedience went down to 30%.
1: That's just gruesome to imagine. They really have to put their hand on it. Um, And I think shows the power of different senses and really touching someone Mm. and how that sort of breaks the genetic state. And there's also a more, you are taking a far more active role. Totally,
0: Yeah, you're not able to kind of deny. Because Mm -hmm. when somebody's in the other room, it's like, okay, I'm not looking at them. I can just kind of forget that there's somebody suffering over there. When you're actually they're right next yeah. to you um
1: and it's wild like Mil- milgram says like we didn't think we were gonna have to do all these variations right. like yeah. you can see him kind of being like well geez what are we gonna need to do now to, to see if someone yeah. will stop yeah. and it gone all the way to what what if he holds his hand on the pain
0: yeah and this made me think of so there's a famous which i'm sure you've heard of the the Um, kind of thought experiment in philosophy called the trolley experiment Mm -hmm. where it's basically like all right if there's a train coming down a track and it's about to hit and kill five people and you are in a position where you can pull a lever and it will the train will then go on a different course and kill one person like would you do it Mm -hmm. and for this phrasing of the experiment most people say yes most people say yeah well yeah you're you know like you'd pull this lever and you'd kill one person versus five people dying of course but when that is framed all right so there's a train coming down on the tracks and it's headed to kill five people and you happen to be on a bridge above the train and there's a really fat person on the on the bridge and by pushing that person off the train or excuse me off the bridge it would fall they would fall in front of the train thus stopping the train and killing the fat person but saving the other five would you do it and <laughs> i don't know ridiculous like that these you know philosophers just come up with these uh, crazy questions but most people say no to that mm-hmm. and the, the theory is it's because like we've kind of evolved this visceral response to the act of actually pushing somebody Mm -hmm. and actually, you know, that tactile experience of causing harm triggers a part of our brain that like flipping a switch or pulling a lever doesn't. Mm. And I think you could say the same thing about this experiment is like, okay, well, they're harming them, but they're just doing a little flick of the finger versus actually like holding, I think he said they had to like hold the hand down and shock them. Which, yeah, we just have a much more like instinctive reaction to.
1: Yeah, and it's like there's a, a, almost a a dirtiness of like dirtying your hands, the blood on your hands, of literally holding someone there, um, and being the one that if your hand wasn't there, that wouldn't have happened.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think that was the. One of the most significant uh, changes, like in terms of proximity to victim. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: the second section had some two when we ad- started adding other people. So the two peers rebel. Oh, yeah. Um, so let's see. They, they were multiple subjects, mm-hmm. multiple people that were responsible for making the experiment happen all all of which were actors except for one and when you start to get some conversation or dissent amongst that group and there were different variations of who did what task some yeah. person just read and some person just flipped the switch um but when you when you you have a group with variation within it it was easier to start thinking in a way that you might not totally. be obedient
0: yeah so like you said in this one i yeah i think it was the subject plus two other subjects and these two subjects at some point would say hey I'm not partaking at this yep. and they would go to the other side of the room and then the you know a few volts later the second one would say hey I'm not doing this go to the other side of the room it was a lot more likely that the subject who the experiment was actually on would stop and mm-hmm. say like all right I'm done too yep and he gave a few explanations for why this happened um I mean the obvious one is you know, that we kind of conform to the majority mm-hmm. and in this way, even though the authority is telling you to continue, you now kinda of
1: have power in numbers. And there this also goes back to his kind of more theoretical explanation of authority is like the the reason we submit to others in sort of a hierarchical sense, is so that we can operate more efficiently. Mm. And if you have dissenting opinions or variation within a group, you can't move as fast. You can't head toward a goal. You need that coherence to be effective. And once that coherence is already broken, it's easier. You're already in a chaotic state. You're not the one that's making that first chaos and kind of opening the door to say no.
0: Totally. Well, and then just... Bringing this idea to, like, a more, like, a broader real-world applications, um, I recently watched the movie uh, A Hidden Life, or The Hidden Life, mm-hmm. and it's about a um, movie by Terrence Malick. It's about this, based on a true story about this guy who was a conscientious objector in World War II. Um, and was just like, I don't want to be a part of it at all and of course you know he was sent to prison and then later executed uh but the big thing there was it wasn't so much of a big deal that he dissented but what the nazis were afraid of was that other people would Mm -hmm. see his example and join in and then you have a serious problem on your hands so i think you know a lot of times it is the authority that is aware that okay one person you know, dissenting alone isn't a really a big deal, but they might cause others to, yep, you know, to disobey as well. And then you've got like a real problem on your
1: hands. Yep. And the louder that mob gets, the more dangerous they become.
0: And the numbers for this. Uh, so when the two peers disobeyed first, uh, only 10% of people went all the way to 450 volts. So that was the most significant one. I mean, you've got going from 65% to Mm -hmm. 10%. That's a huge jump.
1: Yeah. And and his first reason for this is he says the peers instill in the subject the idea of defying the experimenter, which goes back to what you're saying originally is they didn't even, some didn't even think that they could or that Mm. that was an option. Yeah. Um, And I think within, especially in situations in life where you're, really with low power or low socioeconomic status or any of that like often it doesn't even cross your mind that you could say no
0: right even like a really trivial example i think of of, is like i don't know like buying a hot dog at a vendor and them saying like all right four bucks and it's like no like (laughs) i'm not gonna pay four bucks for a hot dog or you know you like you have that option And like, I don't, know, I, maybe because I'm in sales, I just, I do this more than the average person, but I'll like haggle with the, the people and be like, no, yeah. like I'll give you $3, but I'm not paying fucking $4 for a hot dog. And a lot of times they'll be like, okay, three bucks. But it's like, I think a lot of people just don't even think like, no, this just is what it is.
1: Yep. Yeah. And the monetary example is great because we think of it as gold. A dollar is a dollar. Well, okay. What is a dollar? Like this, mm. these are really Lacking context And gosh I think of traveling too Like how many times Have I been ripped off Because I don't really Know the price And I'm not gonna You know Fight Question it Yeah Question someone And fight back
0: Yeah And there's a lot of I mean It's another thing We can get into There's a lot of reasons We don't question it We don't want to look stupid Yep Like you said If we're traveling You know We don't want to Have that awkward situation Where they're like No
1: That that is how much
0: it costs Like we don't want to look Like an idiot Right Um, and the other, oh, go ahead.
1: But if you do ask, I mean, I've also like asked, like, can I have this for free? Yeah. And sometimes it works. Oh, yeah. Because people just aren't used to you even asking.
0: They don't even think it's an an option. Right. Right.
1: And they're so just flabbergasted by the (laughs) resistance to capitalism that they give it to you.
0: Yeah. There's some, uh, I forget, some podcast I was listening to, the guy was like, all right, your homework assignment is next time you order a coffee at Starbucks, like ask for 10% off. And I think it's one of those things like no people just like wouldn't even think to do that. Right. But it's crazy how much how many times it actually works.
1: Right, right.
0: Um So yeah, just seeing it as being an option and then he mentions a term here. I don't know if he coined this term, but it's It's a real SAT word, Mm counter-anthropomorphism, which, here. What does it mean? It means, (laughs) (laughs) thank you for asking. It means, uh, it's, quote, the phenomenon when humans treat systems of human origin as it exists Mm. above and beyond any human agent, beyond the control of or whim of human feeling. The human element behind agencies and institutions is denied. Example, when the experimenter says the experiment requires that you continue, the subject feels this to be an imperative that goes beyond any mere, merely human command. And then they gave one example of, of a, one of the subjects who you know, was t- being told after he was like, hey, I don't want to continue here. And the experimenter said, well, the experiment must continue. The subject said, quote, it's got to go on. It's got to go Mm. on. And then Milgram says, quote, he failed to realize that a man like himself wanted it to go on. So you're almost giving agency to the experiment experiment and thinking like, well, like we can't do anything. The experiment must go on.
1: That line, the experiment requires you to continue, will be like seared into my (laughs) brain because especially after hearing it in the audio, Mm. it's really, really intense. It has like a Star Wars thing (laughs) to it. Like this is, it's bigger than you. And there's, there's that ideology of like, this is for science. Yeah. At a time when science, you know, this is like the space race, you know, this is, this is ethics.
0: Totally. Well, yeah, that, that was one of the lines the experimenter would use and- and it does it kind of takes the possibility of dissent away Mm -hmm. because if if the guy were to phrase it as i want you to continue the experiment the guy might be like well fuck you i'm not doing it but if he goes the experiment requires they kind of go oh well the experiment requires that means i have to do it
1: the great experiment
0: (laughs) crazy stuff um, any
1: other variations?
0: Yeah, there were f- maybe one or I two. I mean, the more. other crazy
1: part is mm. that none of the other variations worked. Mm. What were some of the some others? Some of the yeah,
0: so some of the ones that didn't really do much. They moved the location of the experiment from Yale to the basement, to a basement in Yale, thinking maybe it would have less kind of legitimacy in the subject's eyes. That didn't have any effect. And then they moved it off-site to, like, an office building in Bridgeport. And it did dip a little bit. It went to, like,
1: 48%. Enters with prior conditions, they came in, like, saying they had a heart condition. No real reaction.
0: Oh, when, yeah, when the victim Yeah, the victim said,
1: said they had some issue. Yeah. Wild.
0: And, yeah, like you said, since I think Milgram was so stunned by what was happening in the experiments like initially the victim didn't say anything he was just mm-hmm. silent behind the wall and then like everybody was just automatically going to 450 and they were like he was like oh man i need to add some stuff to see if i can slow these people down so then he came up with the like agonizing screams and the victim saying like
1: stop get me out of here Can you imagine being the actor preparing for their paid gig that day? Yeah. Like, what a, you know, they're thinking, I went to Juilliard for this. Yeah. Wild. Oh,
0: man. Yeah,
1: Yeah, there's a lot of theatrics in this experiment. Mm. You think Mm -hmm. of science as being sort of so sterile, and this thing is just all sorts of messy
0: totally totally
1: and like who made that machine and like paint it on triple xx <laughs> like it seems too much well
0: and milgram is watching the whole thing behind one way glass and there's a movie they made out of this is really good and actually jim gaffigan plays the victim the yeah kind of, stop get me out of here <laughs> which uh is really funny oh, but yeah milgram is out. watching all this happen behind one way glass which is pretty creepy
1: super creepy <laughs>
0: um so we've kind of been talking about some of the different things both motivating people to obey and motivating people to disobey mm-hmm. and i think the obvious thing is to say all right these people that because there were people that stopped the experiment and maybe in a minute we can talk about some of the anecdotes because they're mm-hmm. interesting to get into so there were some people that say all right time out i'm done i'm out and in terms of the motivate what was motivating them, I think the obvious one is you know they were like, "Hey, this you were harming this person, I don't want to be a part of it um but there also might have been some self interest in stopping the experiment. I think some people were maybe fearful of some kind of retaliation from the victim, and that you know maybe the victim's like, "All right well, I'll see you in the parking lot kind of thing or um you know maybe a fear of being sued you did have some of the subjects saying like to the experimenter like hey are you going to be responsible for this if this guy dies um so it is possible that some of these subjects halted the experiment not out of empathy but out of kind of self-preservation of like hey like you know i don't i don't want a court case or like i don't want this guy you know kicking my ass in the parking lot kind of thing
1: huge and he refers to them as strain um and so what are the things that are causing that strain within the subject Mm. um retaliation being one um this uh, the literal cries of pain as sort of being nails on a chalkboard and just physically uncomfortable to actually listen to yeah um we talked about self-image of the subjects it doesn't line up um, mm-hmm. The idea of contradictory demands. So you have a subject telling you one thing, an experimenter telling you another. How yeah. do you kind of reconcile those things? Yep. And you know th- the strain is true whether you subject you know whether you disobey it or not. You're gonna st- still gonna sort of feel that discomfort.
0: And in, in one of the things I thought Milgram does a great job of is he kind of thinks of everything
1: because mm-hmm.
0: anytime there was. I was kind of like, well, maybe this was motivating them to obey, or maybe this was motivating them to disobey. He would then like say it in the next paragraph. Um, Yeah, we already talked about the one that's the
1: sequential nature of action. um, that, that, but if he goes on, he is reassured about his past performance. Earlier actions give rise to discomforts, which are neutralized by later ones, and the subject is implicated into the destructive be- behavior in a piecemeal fashion. Um, so the you know the farther along he goes, if he disobeys, he's now saying, "Hey, I've been an asshole all along. All along this whole thing is mm-hmm. a sham." And I think I can certainly relate to. Once you're caught in a lie or once you've headed in one direction, it takes a lot of courage because you're sort of negating everything that got you there.
0: Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, that's huge. Right, yeah, if you disobey at 450 volts, you're kind of implicitly saying I was wrong when I administered 300
1: volts. Definitely.
0: On, On that point, too, I was kind of thinking one thing I would have liked to see one variation I would have liked to see is would any of them have administered 450 volts right off the bat? Mm. Cause I wonder if part of it was this, like what's called kind of like the foot in the door technique. Like they had since they started with such small and worked their way up, worked their way up that going from 350 to 375 didn't really seem like a big deal, to the point where, you know, it's kind of like the metaphor: you turn the boiling pot of water up in such small increments, and then you, the frog boils alive, kind of thing. And that, like, maybe because they were just going up fifteen, 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 it didn't actually, it didn't actually feel to them like, hey, I'm about to hit this guy with 450 volts. That's a shitload of right uh, volts
1: right yeah and how many movies is the plot that someone wakes up and they're having a normal day and then by the end of the day they're burying a body just because all you know all (laughs) these things just really start to stack up and um you have to make it worse in order to solve the you know whole Mm. thing to begin with totally um anxiety was an interesting one and he defines anxiety an often overused term today as vague apprehensions of the unknown um and this idea that hey when you follow the experiment you kind of know what's gonna happen everything is laid out once you start to disobey you don't know what's gonna happen It, it becomes this unknown and that has a lot of You know, you can have a lot of fear associated with it. And that's where you start to get all these, you know, anxious laughter and and Mm -hmm. um, all of that. And then he ends that. And this is just double star for me. The remarkable thing is once the ice is broken through disobedience, virtually all the tension, anxiety and fear evaporate. Um, And I, gosh, I feel that so much in life is you lead up to this thing that you don't want to say and it ruins your life for weeks and months and you're thinking about it. And then you take that 10 second leap of bravery and all of a sudden, like, it all really goes away. Um, But it's that first break with obedience, that first break with whatever we call it now, setting, giving boundaries or pushing back, Mm -hmm. saying no. um, That's the really hardest hump to get over.
0: That's great. And he even calls at one point, he says that as trivial as politeness Mm -hmm. or that like initial awkwardness, like people are so adverse to being awkward or feeling awkward that they're willing to just continue with this thing of like, it would be awkward if I told this guy, no.
1: Oh man. And I feel that so much in life. Like Mm. I I would be interested to see this experiment with um, agreeable versus disagreeable sort of personality types um, and how willing people are to say no just based on who they generally are. Um, But yeah, I mean, part of submitting to the experimenter is not just being under their control, but sort of being responsible for their emotions. Mm. And you don't get tied to the victim's emotions. You're tied to how this person sort of feels too. And you don't want to embarrass them or oppose them or make them feel negative affect in any way.
0: Right. Like they might not wanting to and he he calls it kind of like in a way hurt the experimenter's feelings.
1: Exactly. So
0: it's like, okay, well if I say no, he, I might hurt his feelings because uh it would be like undermining his authority. So he says, um, quote, it is a curious thing that a measure of compassion on the part of the subject and unwillingness to hurt the experimenter's feelings are part of those binding forces inhibiting disobedience. And this reminded me actually of a short story I read a couple of years ago. Uh, it's called "Cat Person." I don't know if you read it. <laughs> Great title. Yeah, it, it was. It was actually I think it was in the New York Times, and it kind of went viral. Um, but it was about this like young girl not, I mean young woman who was about to like hook up with this guy that was a few years older and there was a passage that stuck out to me that kind of reminded me of this same phenomenon uh, so just real quickly I'm just going to read this paragraph quote Margaret sat on the bed while Robert took off his shirt and unbuckled his pants pulling them down to his ankles before realizing that he was still wearing his shoes and bending over to untie them. Looking at him like that, so awkwardly bent, his belly thick and soft and covered with hair, Margaret recoiled. But the thought of what it would take to stop what she had set in motion was overwhelming. It would require an amount of tact and gentleness that she felt was impossible to summon. It wasn't that she was scared he would try to force her to do something against her will, but that insisting they stop now after everything she'd done to push this forward would make her seem spoiled and capricious, as if she ordered something at a restaurant and then once the food arrived, had -hmm. changed her mind and sent it back. So in this case, she's talking about, you know, this woman who, you know, goes back to this guy's place and is really like, hey, I actually don't want to have sex with this guy, but it would be really awkward to stop it now after we've kind of been like, flirting and teasing about it and you know implying that it's going to happen this whole time that yeah it's almost like a sense of kind of politeness and like oh I don't want to hurt this person's feelings so I'm just going to go ahead with it
1: right particularly if you give mixed messages Mm. or you've given a certain message in the beginning yeah you feel like you have to have be consistent throughout and it's hard it's hard to walk back from yeah, that's a that's a really good example. And I mean, how many people have been on dates and they have to go through the night or they have to go on a second date because they feel obligated. Like there's the you know, yeah. That's a very very common trope.
0: And it's like yeah, it's like in a sense out of not wanting to feel awkward.
1: Mm-hmm. Like we
0: we don't want to feel uncomfortable or we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings, so you yeah, know, in this case, we'll, you know, sleep with somebody or, you know, this happens with buying stuff. Sometimes like, you know, I work in Times Square, you'll see people just like buy the bracelet just because they feel awkward and they don't totally. want to say no. So they're like, all right, here's five bucks, just stop making me feel uncomfortable. Yep. Um, or, hey, I'll do I'll shock this guy just like, you know, whatever.
1: Yeah, make it go away.
0: Make it go away. In my notes, I called this doing evil in the name of politeness.
1: Mhm. Yeah. And it's really uncomfortable to be not polite. Mm. And it's not it's you know it's just so socialized. Um it's it does not feel good and and just I mean we walk away from any interaction And if you think someone doesn't like you or that didn't go well, it's just a little harder to sleep at night. Like, it Mm. it doesn't feel good. He, I think one of my favorite quotes in this whole book is 163. Mm. The act of disobedience requires a mobilization of inner resources and their transformation beyond inner preoccupation, beyond merely polite verbal exchange into a domain of action. And the action is, like, the hardest part here. And then he goes on to say, "The price of disobedience is a gnawing sense that one has been faithless. Even though he has chosen the morally correct action, the subject remains troubled by the disruption of the social order he brought about, and cannot fully cannot fully dispel the feeling that he deserted a cause which he had pledged support. It is he, and not the obedient subject, who experiences the burden of his action. So, just wild that." Even in walking away from this, even the person who did the morally right thing mm. is walking away feeling worse feeling about the shitty. whole exchange <laughs> yeah. than the person who did the right thing. And it's like no good deed. Yeah. Um, that was just, wow.
0: Yeah. I mean, that is like, man. yeah, you don't you, like nobody's going to praise you, pat you on your back. I mean that was in in the movie I mentioned earlier, the um uh a hidden life, the conscientious objector mm. like now we kind of look at him, and we're like, oh, what a great guy like he should uh you know should have a building named after him, but like at the time, like you know, just getting spat on by like everybody in his community going to jail, going to prison, finally being executed, his wife screaming at him why why are you doing this to our family so it's like yeah even if you do the quote right thing it's like you don't really a lot of times the the lone dissenter is mm. not uh doesn't doesn't really get celebrated
1: uh, absolutely and particularly if you're socially ostracized like if there's mm. social ramifications for this that's you know really unlivable mm. um,
0: um yeah do you want to get into any of these like profiles they they have some yes. Some kind of anecdotes of of different people and what their experiences were. Who
1: were your favorites?
0: There was an Old Testament professor.
1: Yeah, he was great.
0: He was one of the people that stopped. When the experimenter said, you have no other choice, sir, you must go on, he said, quote, if this were Russia, maybe, but not in America. It's a very uh, American answer.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And comes just really a sign of the times. Right. And uh, he is one to spontaneously bring up the word ethics. Um, and certainly that derives from his background and his teacher, but he's the one that they really name as also being a religious person. Mm -hmm. Um, So they explain the true purpose of the experiment of him and the experimenter asks, what is your opinion is the most effective way of strengthening resistance to inhumane authority? The subject answers, if one had as one's ultimate authority, God, then it trivializes human authority.
0: Which is interesting because he is still being obedient to authority. It's just that his authority is god almighty not the experimenter in the lab coat
1: yep exactly there's something there's some sort of higher power um which is guiding and i mean gosh if that higher power has a decent sort of moral structure then Mm. that certainly can be thought to be a good thing um and interesting trivializing human authority um but I mean, if if there's any good part of religion, it's you know having someone that's greater than the king, greater than uh, you know the president, someone who makes makes those rules. I thought this was was powerful, and he's one of the few. They don't mention many of the. Well, there aren't many of them dissenters
0: in this. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I think I mean, going back to that quote we just talked about is of how hard it is to walk away having dissented. Um, mm. It's e- easier so if you have some sort of a strong moral value structure that can help you sleep yep. at night. And if that is religion, so be it. Um, but it also m- makes me think of, gosh, everything. You know, sort of the stoic values of have your own person, personal morals. It reminds me of kind of the, the Ubermensch ideal of having your own personal value structure mm. Um, and if that, if, if that is more important to you than basically anything, yeah. then it's going to be a lot easier to oppose others and sort of sleep at night, even having pissed people off.
0: Right. And it kind of goes into like, um, a power and numbers thing in that, like, even though this guy is dissenting, he, he is not alone in that, like he is. You know, with God in standing mm-hmm. in objection to mm-hmm. this, it kind of uh, can, at least for him, give him that like feeling of, all right, it's not like I'm a lone dissenter here. I'm I'm with God in in objection to yep. what what these people are telling me what to do.
1: And there's a supersedent goal too of I'm also trying to whatever it is get into heaven like not sin mm-hmm. there's the there's a long game here yeah. that sure if I lose you know lose if I don't if I disobey but there's a you know there's an, a final reward so to speak and there's a flip side because goodness knows religion ideology has been justification for also following authority and doing immoral yeah. things. Um, but this guy seems pretty staunch that that's sort of what kept him.
0: Totally. Well, and, and on that point, uh, at the, actually at the very beginning of the book, I think in the preface, um, Milgram says the idea of obedience to authority goes back, you know, centuries, millennia. And he talks about the old Testament and the story of Abraham and Isaac, Yeah. which, uh, as most people know is the the story where god is asking abraham to kill his son isaac and abraham is very conflicted and's like basically like no i don't want to do this and god is telling him to it's like strangely similar to this experiment mm. and i think the moral in that story is that like you should do what god tells you I mean, God ultimately says, "Whoa, actually, don't kill him. Last second, <laughs> last second, like pump the brakes. But, but I think the what Milgram is saying is like in a lot of these religions, obedience to authority, that authority being God, is thought to be a good thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's just that hey, we got to be careful if this authority is asking us to do malevolent things,
1: right? right and in that way you're separating out the sort of spiritual higher power from the institution hmm. or the humans that are kind of you know living that out um but yeah i mean this if 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 nothing else these religious texts are moral rules with which to live and and do good hmm. um Or this guy was just, like, trying to be on his high horse after he (laughs) did a good thing. He's trying to throw it up to the big man. Yeah. Sky Daddy.
0: The other thing that was kind of interesting psychologically that would happen is after the experiment uh, had been finished and the people would, you know, had obeyed and, and shocked the victim, they would say in justification, well, yeah, but, like, I felt bad about it like they would they would use the their objections or their belief that it was wrong as a justification for doing it Hmm. and Milgram I mean that's interesting psychologically is that that was kind of again a way for people to kind of I guess live with themselves is like you know like oh I can sleep at night because even though I shocked this person like I knew it was wrong while I was doing it. He says, quote, some subjects derive satisfaction from their thoughts and felt that within themselves, at least, they had been on the side of the angels.
1: Mm.
0: And then he says, quote, what they failed to realize is that subjective feelings are largely irrelevant to the moral issues at hand, so long as they are not transformed into action. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So, yeah, and, and, you know, he brings this home, um I don't have the quote in front of me, but he basically says, hey, it doesn't matter if, you know, the Nazi concentration camp guards felt bad about what they're doing. What mattered was their actions.
1: Right. And that's the hardest part. You know, it's easy to to dissent, to argue and to say no. It's easy to feel uncomfortable. It's easy to. Um, have emotional strain and feel all sorts of hard ways but it's really hard to do the action actually
0: do the thing do the thing and
1: stop it and people even said like i'm gonna stop i don't want to do this anymore but they didn't actually then carry it on
0: right right yeah um
1: so one of my faves is mm -hmm. gretchen
0: Okay, which one was Gretchen? She's
1: page 84. She's the medical technician. And she's an example of someone who, like, she just has to be low in agreeableness and sort of (laughs) high in conscientiousness. She was very straightforward, not very emotional about it. There's some dialogue with her, which ends with the experimenter saying, you have no choice. And she says, I think we are here on our own free will. I don't want to be responsible If he has a heart condition, if anything happens to him, please understand that. It's just like so graceful and like I think who I definitely aspire to be but am not at all. (laughs) Um, The the woman is firm and resolute throughout. She indicates in the interview that she was in no way tense or nervous. And this corresponds to her controlled appearance throughout. So I think there Um, also has to be some personality disposition whether socially or, or born. But then it also says, ironically, Gretchen grew up in to adolescence in Hitler's Germany and mm. was for the great part of her youth exposed to Nazi propaganda. When asked about the possible influence of her background, she remarked slowly, perhaps we have seen too much pain. Beautiful. Yeah. Really, really beautiful.
0: Which that kind of makes me think, like, in a way, she had already participated in the experiment i mean obviously not at the individual Mm -hmm. level but she had seen this experiment play out um in nazi germany it kind of makes me think like okay if these people who are in this experiment were to be in an analogous experiment down the road would they be less likely to obey right um i tend to think yes but as we've talked about earlier we're pretty bad at predicting our and capacity anything at yeah. all
1: yeah and you know we'll talk we can talk about the ethical implications of it but th- this thing had to impact these people's lives sure. um and yeah. you see i mean i think in my experience traveling to germany although this book he kind of says some things that don't correspond it's a very knowledgeable historical country like my mm. peers in germany know so much more history yeah. than than we do because they come from that and i think that there is um at least in the sort of centuries to immediately following that sort of atrocity you know you keep it really fresh in your mind mm. um and you know the, the way that these folks were put on trial you know this was something that the country really really grappled with
0: definitely well, maybe we could talk a little bit about the ethics of the experiment because that's one of the things that comes up a lot with this experiment is a few things. I mean, like, was it ethical to lie to these subjects, to tell them you're being experimented on for this memory test when, in fact, they're, you know, being tested on whether or not they will obey? Um, Milgram... At the end, this was actually, I think, in the, like, up uh, the, what's that called? Appendix? Yeah. Uh, so they they polled people, like, I think a year after the experiment. It said 84% said they were glad to have been in the experiment. 15% were neutral. 1.3% uh, indicated negative feelings. Uh, four out of five people thought more experiments of this, shor- this sort should be carried out. And then 74% said they had learned... About themselves in an important way.
1: Seventy-four hmm. percent. Yeah, that's high.
0: Yeah, one of the things I I th- kind of thought about is he he mentioned a lot of times that the subjects would go home and like tell their spouse about right. this, and the spouse would of course have the reaction of, "Oh, I would never do that." Right. Um. Without actually having been in the situation, so. I, I think that might be a little alienating to kind of, you know, your spouse thinking you're this monster.
1: Yeah. And you, you have to live with that and, and grapple with it. But I think, I mean, even to the going back to the sort of person that grew up in Nazi Germany, it's easy to really quickly forget how bad things could be. Mm And, you know, even these folks that were closer to that atrocity um, were willing to do it. And I think, um, I mean, we both laughed about this, that we don't really even care about the ethical implications because it's so damn fascinating. Um, But I think anything that brings up people's capacity for evil can only help us, you know, when we see, Mm. you know, mass shootings on the news when we see, you know, people doing really atrocious things saying, hey, that's not just an evil actor that was born evil, but is there something else going on here? Um And so I, you know, I, I almost think of it as a blessing that these people got to go through this thing. Yeah. Because the sooner you can can see your shadow in a Jungian Mm. sense the you know the sooner you can sort of become a more integrated person and find your best and worst qualities and go head somewhere
0: yeah well and to kind of uh riff off of that like kind of Jungian flavor of this like I kind of wonder if the people who this experiment was good for and had these kind of positive effects that they talk about were people who were maybe at a stage of maturity or psychological development where they were ready to see maybe those unpleasant negative parts of themselves that are able to do such a thing and integrate them. Hmm. And maybe the people who were less mature or less psychologically developed were the people who, instead of, you know, like, this guy saying, hey, you know, I was responsible for this, and, like, I need to think about that, I think maybe these people were the ones that are saying, no, no, I didn't do anything wrong. Like, mm-hmm. no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm fine, uh, it's you. Or, or the people that just had a really hard time with it. Mm. And I think of, like, PTSD right. with soldiers, a lot of times isn't them seeing some gory shit, a lot of times it's them uh seeing what they are capable of right and having to like live with like oh my gosh like i'm capable of killing dozens of people and not really being able to integrate that into mm-hmm. their self identity
1: mhm
0: so yeah i don't know i'm i'm mostly like just i think my curiosity leads me to um you know think, Hey, this, I I wish there were more experiments like this, but, um, I understand the ethical argument, um, maybe in that, I guess it could be damaging to somebody who is not quite ready to, um, to, uh, learn some of those truths about themselves.
1: Mm. And I mean, I just wish there were more opportunities for us to see those glimpses Mm. without hurting anyone and without sort of damaging our psyche you know if we could if we could accept that weakness as kind of a pathway to growth but it's really hard to yeah. to look at that um and to sort of know what to do with it and to not feel ashamed and embarrassed hmm. it's something that needs to happen really on the individual level no one can show that to you yeah um and i think that's these folks you know after ha- after the experiment sitting down and they're, you know, not many of them are willing to be like, yeah, you, you fooled me, you know, like this is a great yeah, science right. experiment.
0: Um, totally. It's hard
1: to come to terms with.
0: Yeah, crazy stuff. Well, that was the end of my notes, but I, I want to keep going. Were there, were there other stuff that you had Let's see what had we missed. That I, yeah, let's... I think
1: we hit a lot of my greatest hits.
0: Hmm. Um, <laughs> let me know if you got some. I got... Something
1: okay. What do you got?
0: All right, this might be like a funny, fun way to end. Um, Mm -hmm. controls that we would have liked to see of the experiment or variations. Mm. So, there are a few more serious ones and less serious ones. One, one of the ones I would have loved to see is if like the experimenter was a woman, if that would have affected Mm -hmm. um, obedience rates. And if the victim was a woman, if that would have uh, mm-hmm. affected, like people maybe would have been less inclined to harm a woman, especially in the '60s, um, or a
1: child, or a
0: child. Yeah, that would I would that would be interesting. Yeah, to we'd see. be
1: willing to see that. <laughs> we'd be willing to strap them up. <laughs> we'd be willing to pay for that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, that was one that stuck out. Uh.
1: I already talked about this, but I yeah. would like to see personality trait differences mm. and just in general, more demographic differences and whatever psych, psychographic, socioeconomic differences across the board.
0: Yeah, me too.
1: And, and see how that, especially with what we know people. about,
0: like the, the big five personality, yeah. like they, I feel like could be very systematic about okay, these big five traits correlate with obedience. Mm -hmm. Um, And he seemed to think think that like uh, there wasn't really a way to correlate specific traits. Um, He says, quote, I am certain that there is a complex personality basis to obedience and disobedience, but I know we have not found it. Right. The other one that I was interested in, and this is maybe just, stupid but (laughs) i would love to see like like punk musicians like punk rock Mm. musicians and like i would love to see like what's the guy named uh, zach de la roca from like rage against the machine like how he would do in this experiment like if he would just be like fuck you i won't do what you tell me or if he would actually you know go all the way
1: yeah well and that's different interesting too because like there's a metal resistance to pain hardcore aspect too so would he mm. be more desensitized to like yeah fuck <laughs> these people yeah. or would he be more willing to to you know resist authority and so that's also like okay are there pr- innate personality traits but are there al- also professions or walks of life yeah. that would make people react differently and I'm sure there's variation within those things. Because um, totally. you saw like more m- cops and military people and people who were already submitting mm. to authority. Um, but yeah, it would be pretty cool to get some metal heads in there.
0: Yeah, that could be like part of the audition to be in the band. Yeah, like you have to you have to tell the experiment to fuck off right if you're gonna be anti-established enough to be in this band
1: biker gangs (laughs) absolutely
0: well so cool this was so much fun thank you for
1: having me yeah
0: thank you for doing this and um
1: what are our takeaways
0: takeaways uh don't submit to authority unless you have a good reason
1: don't be a pushover
0: don't be a pushover
1: stand up for what's good yeah
0: all right. Thanks, Claire. Thank
1: you. See
0: you. Thanks for listening to Unpacking Ideas. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or scroll down and write us a review or give us a rating. All that stuff is extremely helpful, so thanks for doing that in advance. If you would like to get in touch with me or to hear about future podcasts that are coming up, please visit unpackingideas.com podcast. Uh, and there, I post links to the articles and essays and books that we'll be discussing on future episodes. All right, guys, that's going to do it for today. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next episode.